Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tej Talks podcast in 2021. It doesn't really feel like much has changed, though, does it? It kind of feels the same stuff. We're all at home and not, you know, hugging each other and stuff. But in more exciting news, on today's podcast, I have Jack and Ben from EXP Property. Now, I've been fortunate enough to actually go and see uh, three of the properties that we are discussing today. One of them is so interesting. They took an underground car park underneath some flats and converted it into two brand new, very nice flats. Now, you know, we drive past a lot of things and we walk past things and we think, oh, that'll never, you know, can't do anything there. It's got no development potential, but they did it out of something pretty unusual. And I think 99% of people, even experienced developers would look at it and say, ah, too many problems with this, that, and the other. It's not even worth it. But they combined their wits and their brains and their experience and knowledge, and they did it. And we also talk about a 2.1 million GDV project which was a mixed-use residential and commercial with offices at the back, resi at the front. Now, all of these projects, by the way, are on my YouTube. So click the link in the show notes, subscribe, hit like, and check out the videos of me on site with EXP Property. Now, if you haven't left a review for the podcast, yeah, you can. Can you believe it? So many people are so surprised, even though I say it every time. It's mad. Go on iTunes or on the Facebook page and leave a review there. If you haven't got my new book, get to Amazon. What are you waiting for? And of course, my e-learning is now out, tedgetalks.learnworlds.com. I have a special offer at the moment. Send me a DM on Instagram and I might give you 30% off. Jack and Ben from eXp Property, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Hello. Hey, Tej, how are you doing? I'm very well. I'm, I'm glad we could get some time in the diary to do this. I know I visited some of your sites, had a little day out with you. Uh, the other week, which was uh, pretty cool, pretty awesome to see what you're working on. Um, so people, if you want to see some of the projects we're talking about, head over to my YouTube channel and hopefully they'll be live by now. Um, so you're working on some pretty interesting developments, some pretty interesting deals, some some planning, some, you know, some big stuff, I would say. Now, before we get into all that, you know, what were you both doing well, I suppose, what were you both doing before you started working together in EXP? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll start. Um, uh, we actually met at uh, Progressive Property. So we both did their, their VIP program. Um, we both had the same mentor. Um, and about two, three months into that process, um, our mentor sort of uh, said to us, look, I've mentored you for a few months. I think you two would work really well together why don't you have a chat? So we kind of knew each other through various networking circles and, you know, the VIP kind of see, see people around and we kind of knew of each other, but never had that sort of proper chat. So yeah, we, we met up a few times. We started talking about doing some stuff together, stacking some deals, just seeing how we sort of work together, I guess. And it just snowballed from there. So we set up the business in July, 2018. So we're sort of two and a bit years on now. Um, and yeah, still continuing to grow, working together. We've employed our first employee this summer, um, looking to get someone else on board very quickly. And yeah, we'll talk through some of our 
schemes um, in more detail, I'm sure. Nice. Jack, was it love at first sight or was it a bit of a, a process? Head over heels. <laughs> no, no, it was... Um... It was. I, th- I think with any joint venture partnership, it is a process. Um, whether it's attributes or values uh, are the main sort of things I think that that most people look for. Um, but quite comically, Ben and I uh, earlier on realised that we both had the same um, like wealth dynamics profile, which was quite comical. But we're actually quite different in terms of the skill sets and attributes that we bring to the business. Um, I think it actually really just kicked off from looking at a few projects together and realizing that we both brought something different, completely different to the table. Um, And it it just grew from there. It was interesting, actually, because I remember saying to you very early on, like, I feel like we're the same people. Like, how do you see this working? Whereas I now know, like having worked with you, that that we do bring separate skills, different skills, um, and kind of complement each other quite well. But I think based on not knowing you previously, I was like, well, we're both doing similar things. It seems like we both come from sort of relatively similar backgrounds. Um, you know, how is this going to work? Because I feel like we're the same person. Um, but you know, it, it turns out it's uh, it's worked really well, and we both got sort of complementary skills. Great. And before we talk about that, because I do want to, you know, discuss like finding a JV or business partner, because it's something a lot of people maybe jump into, um, maybe struggle with. But before you did this, you were both in property, had your own properties, were doing your own thing. Yeah, we were. So so my um, my background has always been in in architecture, in construction. Um, I studied a, a master's degree in architectural engineering at Cardiff and then worked for um, a small architectural and structural engineering practice based in Berkshire. So I worked there for four years, was very much a kind of a sort of CAD monkey as such, just churning out planning drawings, building regulation packages, structural engineering packages, um, and kind of uh, very, very quickly learned about building regulations and, and the sort of small scale um, house extension and, and property development sort of market. Um, got kind of bored with doing some of the smaller stuff, um, went to uh, closer to London to work for the Berkeley Group for three years. So completely separate scale, you know, from 200,000 pounds of house extensions to 1 billion pound developments in in Battersea and Nine Elm. So completely different sides of the coin, but um, great to work for a small company and a more institutional kind of really big beast. Um, Learned so much through that process. Um, And then in 2017, I started my own, my first personal property development project. So I built a small two bed house in Staines-upon-Thames. refinanced it was was an end terrace property uh got planning permission to build a a new property on the side of that um built it refinanced to release all of my money in a sort of 35 40 grand kind of cash boost and that gave me the confidence and want to basically hand my notice in and and go and do something for myself so that was that was the catalyst really it was I, i refinanced and a week after handed in my notice at the berkeley group um wanted to set up my own business wanted to set up my own developments um and that was yeah may 2017 so i I started an architectural practice off the back of that which is still running sort of three and a half years on uh, and then a year after that is when jack and i started the the development business Hmm. jack how about you yeah yeah, my uh, my background is, uh, you could call it property related, but completely different to Ben's uh, to some degree. Um, so I also went to university to business marketing uh, degree. Um, I, I I quite 
comically really enjoyed business and business and marketing um, and all of the modules that I did at university. But I couldn't get my head around that everyone else that I was living with and doing business and business and marketing were applying to grad schemes for like 24 grand a year in central London when I'd been a site manager that prerequisite summer and earned that in one summer um, just because I worked my ass off and, and, and just basically worked hard for, for, for six months. And I just couldn't get my head around that an educated position in central London where your costs and overheads are a triple what mine were was earning me less than I'd worked for in six months. So from that, I, I then basically went into an office job, which was a sales role because I wanted to be rewarded for the hard work I put in rather than being patted on the back by designing something nice and my salary is my salary. I was in that office in that sales position for two years. And although I, I deep down hated it, um, I actually learned so much about getting deals across the line, negotiating deals, how to deliver proposals over emails, um, dealing with you know negotiation, fear of loss, um, all of the above really, which goes hand in hand with property purchases, negotiation tactics for investment, and 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 it and it has helped me in my in my today life. Um, my father and my grandfather were in property. My grandfather ran a construction company, which I've never really had much to do with, but it does build a sort of name around the area I live in. But my father was always a, a he started off as a bricklayer, then went into plant and tool hire and cabin hire for sites. Um, and he exited that in 2004. So although I didn't see the bulk of his work, I sort of understood what he did. And every house that I've lived in, he built. Um, my mum told me quite a funny story. Apparently, when I was four years old and before I was at preschool, um, she caught me uh, up on the scaffolding, walking around with a cigarette butt in my mouth, <laughs> pretending I was a bricklayer. Um, so I was sort of born into it, as, as you could say. But um, after the after the sales position, I had a few... Um, you could call them entrepreneurial ventures. Um, and it gave me the spirit to just say, you know what, sod this, I'm going to go into property and, and deal with it. I think I had a, a a stigma that I didn't want to be the most qualified qualified hod carrier in the UK. Um, but I just sort of took it on the chin and, and did it for a few years and, and really enjoyed um, understanding how property works and how you can monetize it. I didn't necessarily enjoy the hod carrying. I, I got I got a I got a bit of a stick for a few years, to say the least, and that led into basically uh, doing some, you know, sweat equity joint ventures with family and friends on basically bungalows that we were converting into four or five bedroom houses in Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire, um, all of which were was pretty successful, built up, sold, you know, t- take home a, a nice ticket item. But the 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 process of that wasn't really business orientated it was more like project by project and you sort of took your luck as and when and you may get a good project which I hated because you never sort of knew where your next paycheck's coming in you never knew what project you'll be working on one site you might be commuting for five minutes the next it might be an hour and a half and that's your life for a year and it's very very uh, immersive and, and and stressful and um, so I decided to educate myself a bit better and understand how I could flip deals get planning and do a delivery all at the same time uh, so I started working a bit more creatively on that and not just being on the tools and on site and really using my brain rather than my hands to to do the same thing, um, but scale it up. And that was what, you know, working with more people, joint venturing, flipping deals, introducing certain people to certain deals, which then led on to meeting Ben. And we're now obviously growing a development business, which does exactly that. Mm, awesome. And and then let's talk about this this business together. So, you know, when when you first kind of met and you spoke and you kind of talked through things, 
how did you know or what kind of characteristics I suppose did you see in each other that you thought you know what this could be very successful because like I said before a lot of people walk up to you network and event hi you want a JV it's like okay not exactly how it works so you know how can people out there you know going off your example of working so well together what can they learn from that to then take when they're looking for a JV partner or business partner I think it is a really difficult um, process and it, it, you have to get it right because you know, both Jack and I are pretty young. Um, we, we want to be growing this business for a long time coming. So we are going to be you know, working together for a long time. So it has to be right. Um, I think for, for both of us, work ethic is a, a massive, um, massive thing. Like We both work extremely hard um, to, to achieve what we want. Um, I mean, both of us got got married last year, and I know that both our wives, um, you know, we probably speak to to each other more more than we do our wives. Um, you know, we're always on the phone, you know, whether that's late at night or sort of early morning, just to kind of run th- through things and catch up. Um, so work ethic is massive, um, and I think both of us from an early sort of stage showed that, um, which. Yeah, being so sort of important to both of us, I think was was kind of great to see. In terms of sort of things that people should consider, I think it is you know what each people can each person can bring to the table. Like you don't want both people to have the same traits. You need to be able to bounce ideas off of each other and have different viewpoints um, so that you get a more of a blended sort of overarching view um and that comes with your team as well so we've just employed Saul our operations director um and he brings a different element as well completely and a bit of a different mentality which has been a been a nice dynamic but that's that's another thing to to consider in terms of building teams but yeah JV partners um really getting to understand the the work ethic and the morals behind the other person because if you're not aligned on that front and your goals are different um at some point it's going to break down so the sooner you can get to the bottom that the better mm. jack i mean how important do you think as well as what ben said their you know gut feeling is about someone is that something you you listen to quite heavily yeah i i i concur with with everything that ben said in it and it was basically the foundations of us starting to work together um I would certainly suggest doing a project together or work on something to an extent where you'll get to know the person quite a lot more than just setting up a business on company's house and just sort of making a go of it before then. Um, I actually had that situation before I partnered with someone thought it was going to be the one and and it, and it wasn't. Um, whereas Ben and I, were, we were stacking deals week in, week out, and I got a very good flavor for it. And I think at the point that I could say, this guy works hard, I could probably be friends with him outside of property or any of this. And that was, you know, for me enough um, to, to sort of just, just crack on and see where, see where it took us. And after we secured the first deal, we're both on a learning curve, still in property, but it's, it's not about what you know, it's about how you deal with things um, and how proactive you can be on, you know, your area of the business. Um, ben and I have always been avid um, promoters of, of, of divide and conquering so I think you should always be able to trust that other individual to do what they do. And for me, it's refreshing to, to, to let go of something in our business and just know that Ben's going to do the best of his abilities and, and to his skill. He will be learning, but he's going to deliver it better than I could in that area. And I can just sort of let him deal with that. I think there's a lot of partners out there that I see that can't trust their other partner with certain things and have to oversee it and have to combine. But that's not really our game. We like splitting the business down the middle and making sure that if 
we're uncomfortable in our own areas. We do discuss it and we're open with each other. Um, but the most important thing is we can hand that over and just say, look, you crack on. So that that trust and, and being able to, you know, what I'd call like be a friend of that person is quite important because there is quite a few people in the property industry that you see them partner because they're both powerhouses in different industries and now they're going into real estate. But in reality, would those people be together if property wasn't the topic? And and most most common than not, it's, there probably wouldn't be. Um, so that evaluation, from my perspective, is probably pretty key as a as a property developer or someone in property, making sure that whoever you're partnering with, aside of that, you actually get on well with them and and can you know socialize with them, trust them, and and do all of those you know obvious things that you would in any form of partnership, but but dissociate property in itself. Yeah. That's a really good point, actually. That's quite a quite a unique point there. And I think, you know, learning to trust someone, even if you like them and even if you sort of trust them, but actually being able to, like you said there, give the work across and just know it's going to be done is, I think it's difficult for most entrepreneurs because we are, a lot of us, like used to starting and managing everything ourselves and kind of letting it go, especially when it's like you've got a deadline, you've got, a, you know, vendor's deadline, your options running out, you know, blah, blah, blah. It can be quite difficult to, to trust someone like that. So, you know, it is something that has to take time to build up and you have to understand each other. So when you set this business up, ESP Property, what was your sort of like goal or strategy? Like what did you want to achieve together? We we, we actually did a kind of a goal session um, you know, pretty early on, didn't we, in terms of looking ahead sort of three, five, even sort of 10 years. And uh, I think we said, right, okay, let's both do it separately and then see what happens you know put pull them together and see if we're aligned in anything and and it, it was sort of comical kind of how closely i think we were aligned with where we want to be in sort of three five ten years time and we're both kind of pretty sort of family orientated um so that's quite important to kind of both of us and it's, it's kind of growing and and leaving sort of legacy going forward and and helping out our family and, and improving our sort of family lives um in the future um so yeah i'd i'd say to to anyone early on to actually have a look at a sort of goals template um and compare it with your partner and just see where where things do align and if they don't you know get to get to the bottom of why pretty early because if you aren't aligned going forward like i said earlier it's going to make things a lot more difficult yeah no the i i, I remember actually the only different thing that you had on your goals was to be on a homes under the hammer <laughs> yeah it was which, I want... which was which was a bit of a joke <laughs> this is a this is a match made in heaven you know what that's a good exercise to do with with life partners i mean that could create some issues but you know it's, it's, it's a great exercise <laughs> it, to do at least you get those issues out early well yeah exactly you don't want <laughs> before you commit up. too much well yeah especially if you've got million pounds on a deal on the line so yeah. um you know tell me about EAC property what is you know what are you doing obviously I've seen the sites people are going to go on YouTube and watch them but what you know what are you buying what are you working on what is your thing you go Jack yeah cool so we're pretty much doing a bit of everything um if if I were to say in one line to you or an agent or or someone that, that may find a project for us we're we're fundamentally looking for a purchase within the home counties or London or South London, um, within the purchase price of two hundred thousand to three to four million, and we're we're just looking to add value. Um, one of the areas that we actually 
probably surpass quite a lot of people in the market, even though we are a young, dynamic business, is we don't have the expertise. So we always put in hard work. Um, but what we do do pretty well is, is mixed use and understanding the commercial and residential elements. So what we like doing is looking at a site and then understanding how we can make it work rather than flying off of a, a you know a, an educational course in property or commercial conversions or service accommodation and then having a fit criteria of what we've got to be doing we're pretty open um but every, pretty much everything we do does reflect around developments so um we'll run through our projects in more detail but we have land commercial residential and mixed use properties that we're working on and we like the fact that we can sit there and, and work through a solution and both Ben and I have the uh, ability to individually see the vision of that property. Mine will probably be a bit more high level and Ben's a lot more specific that's planning related. And that's how we sort of fine tune it when it goes down the, what I'd like to call the, the production line in the sausage factory. Um, our first purchase, and obviously Ben mentioned he did his own scheme, which was an end of terrace, new build uh, property in, in Staines. I had had prerequisite experience of basically tart up and turn around flips um, and our first project was actually a mixed use building um, which was <laughs> you could you could say completely out of what we're looking for but the way that we approached the project I believe was probably just as professional if not more professional than anyone else would anyway so this was going into a realm of something that we wouldn't probably be doing day in day out and that, that certainly something bigger than we had done ourselves individually um, but our approach was extremely measured. Uh, we de-risked it from the outset. Um, the battle was getting the <laughs> was getting the, the the investment, and that was a, a new learning curve for us. But we could probably come up, come along to that at some point, Ted, because I know that you're uh, you 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 come out with some great nuggets when it comes to investment, and we have the same sort of policies as you. Just honesty, honesty is the best policy, and and we're all here to to to, to push forwards. But um. In terms of what we're doing, uh, our first purchase was a mixed-use building in south of Reading, so just off the M4 in Spencer's Wood. Um, we bought it off an administration firm of a company that had gone under, and the existing structure was four studio flats, seven really small offices, and they were contained in a brick-built building at the front. And if you drive through an archway on that brick building towards the rear of the site, the whole site was tarmacked, was a basically an industrial shed. And it was all a bit messy. So all of the tenants on Resi were on, you know, ASTs that have been running for 36 years. The offices were tiny and they were all inclusive office rates. And we were, you know, the company that owned the, 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 the plot were paying business rates, which is the reason we think it went under. And then the rear building was part let and sort of part vacant. But it was sort of a originally it was a, a roofer's um, a yard. Uh, and he used to obviously store his tools and materials in that building. And then it got converted to a mes level in there. And then some marketing, and and then there was actually a um, a bridal company that that basically where you went in, tried on dresses, and and this that and the other. So it was a bit of a a unique prospect. And the way that we de-risked it is we did a lot of work up front. We invested funds in in a pre-application uh, planning cons uh, consultancy report uh, on what they think was possible. Ben did some good work on space planning, and we we de-risked it by saying, okay, let's assume we don't get planning. What can this building do for us? And we took a, dy a dynamic approach to that because there's residential developers in the area that, that wouldn't want that pro property because there's commercial inclusive and there's commercial developers in that area, some I know, which weren't interested because there's resi on site. But the makeup of the actual building lent itself really well for our first project because 
we were buying it below what it was worth if it is if you just filled it up to 100% occupancy rate split it all up and then sold it so we bought at a good level and that's how we de-risked our first project and the same mentality we took on forward to every deal that we do now what can we do with this if we secure it at x to make sure that everyone gets paid out we're all happy but then if y comes in and we get the planning on that it works well against obviously ben's expertise in in the planning prospects so that was our first project and that's still ongoing we're actually uh, we, we were hugely delayed with COVID-19 with the development funding, but we managed to achieve planning uh, permission to build three new three new flats. So, so they're sort of semi-conversion, semi-new build. It's, it's quite extensively extending uh, the front brick building to, to make that three new flats and keep the four existing, and then planning permission to extend the rear building to be six independent offices. Um, so we bought the site for 780. We got the planning approval and it got valued just under 1.1. And now we're building out the scheme, aiming for a GDV in, in excess of 2.1 million. Um, although it's really high numbers and sounds pretty risky, we've had an ongoing rental income across that whole site since the day we bought it. It's producing between 35 and 40K a year just on the existing tenants we have in place. And the phase one of the build keeps all of those tenants in place. So from a from a first deal perspective, you know our our investor or or the bank can see that even though we're doing something that's probably slightly out of our comfort zone, and the way that you can get overcome that, is, which we can share, is you know a CV showing what you've been up to and and your plans and how you you're approaching the scheme. The, the way that we've gone about the project and de-risking it, taking the income, phasing the build, um, going to a probably a, a more private institution fund rather than a bank so there's a bit more flexibility there which costs us more in the long run but gets the deal rolling and gets us to where we need to be um in my eyes it's just we've just quite creatively approached it and even the agent themselves so the agent that sold it to us a, a, a profound in reading they're probably the biggest commercial agent the chap that that was leading up that sale said i'm really impressed with what you've done with this i, I didn't think that that you know it was worth the time this site and, and i think everyone that viewed that site had the same mentality and we've sort of turned this ugly duckling into a, you know, a, a potential swan that, that obviously we've got market impacts right now, but we're, we're, we're confident we'll still deliver a great scheme. It's cash flowed us today. If this was just a building plot uh, without anything on it, we would be pretty stuffed right now because it would be, you know, losing us money month in, month out. But we've kept it all afloat with the income. We've improved the occupancy rates. We've moved a few people around to make sure that we're abiding by uh, you know, residential use classes and things like that, because it was a bit of a uh, a puzzle to start with. But it's all about, you know, that's our job. Um, and we think we spent good time on it, made good decisions. Um, we've dealt with things that arise and things do arise um, pretty well and and, and promptly. Um, and uh, really excited to, to fully have that scheme end to end so that we can sort of hang our hat up on that and, and have a nice asset that we've part sold and part kept. Mm. And, and actually people this this video of this will be on my youtube channel so go have a look at this because it is you know physically it's quite a big site and, and as jack described it is quite interesting with the way it's split and i think what is important there is you said you know from purchase from from day one you're de-risking by having multiple exits at different stages whether it's you know as is split it up sell it as is just as is if you've bought it super you know below market value selling it with planning doing the actual what you know you have so many stages of buffers of protection um now would you say that 
you know, on every deal of this type, which I guess we'll call property development, it's important for you to have these buffers at every single level and multiple exits? Yeah, that's part of our strategy with every scheme that we work on, um, making sure that we've got a plan B, plan C, plan D, um, if plan A doesn't doesn't work. And, and I'd implore any sort of budding property developers to do the same and look at your fallback position. You know, if your fallback position is you're breaking even, that's a pretty good place to be really when your upside is, you know, a, a 20, 25, 30% return on, on sort of cost. So, um, you know, we always try to have multiple exit strategies and all the projects that we work on. Um, and like you're saying, we're in a position now where, we could sell the site at a decent project at a decent profit if we really wanted to, um, because we've achieved the planning uplift. Um, it, this scheme is extremely flexible, um, sometimes to the point where it really was difficult for some lenders to get their head around because it wasn't a straightforward. We've got a piece of land. This is what we're building, and this is what we're selling. Because it's phased, because it's got commercial and residential, it was actually quite tricky to get some some lenders to kind of take their computer says no hat off and, and actually look at it, you know, and, and put some common sense to it um, because it is a good, good asset. It's income producing. It's got loads of different strategies um, and exits. Um, but to get, to get banks to kind of understand that was actually a bit of a challenge. Mm. And, you know, um, I believe Jackie said it was on the market with an agent and obviously lots of other people have viewed it. So I think a lot of people say, you know, maybe around these kind of areas and these levels, they say, Oh, well, you know, nothing's on market, everything on market, it's overpriced, it's got planning, it's this, that and the other. But you had it on market, but of course you had the knowledge and insight to see it in a totally different way and to maybe consider what others don't. What are your yep. thoughts on, you know, like, well, I guess the question is, are there deals in terms of development, so land, commercial conversions, that kind of thing, online, on the market right now? Yeah, I mean, I'll let Jack go into more detail about this, but I think I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned earlier um, that I think Jack kind of missed out on on this particular site in that us as developers, the way that I see a property developer is seeing value that others don't and, and basically getting that value out of the asset. And that's something we are very good at doing. Too many people come out of potentially you know educational courses or or basically come into property looking for the quick wins and and given kind of where we are and where we want to be you know we are in this for the long long run we're not looking for quick wins and if you are just looking for quick wins then you you're going to struggle more and more you know commercial conversions a lot of offices are now overpriced because of you know everyone knows that you can convert them to offices so sort of vendor expectations have risen considerably this particular project we know that a lot of people viewed this property with the view to turn the rear office building into residential but they can't because prior approval's been removed because it falls within a weird um, atomic weapons discharge, discharge zone, which is um, yeah very unusual, but it doesn't have um, permitted development rights. They've been removed. So you have to look a little bit more creatively at this site. And that's where we will spend the time and look for a cre creative solution. Whereas people would come to this project and look for that easy win where we can just convert the offices to the rear and make a quick buck. Um, so I think yeah, as a developer, your your main job is to add value and de-risk as much as possible and fundamentally that's what we, we will look to do on every site that we we um go into yeah completely agree and to, to but sort of drawing back to teddy's question and it falls exactly in line with what we do day to day and, and especially saul and i on the acquisition side of things 
it kills me, literally kills me and feels like salt in a wound when, when someone's on a webinar and says, I don't look at on-market deals, it's a waste of time because I'm like, they're the deals that I'm snapping up week in, week out, and you're spending six months fumbling around with letters trying to get a direct vendor site with the same return as what I'm buying you know, once a month. We, you know, This year, we will average close to a purchase a month, and every single one of those deals has an excess of 18 to 20% back on GDV. Some don't require planning or any work. So the deals are the deals are out there. It's just how you approach them. And one of my favorite phrases, which a mentor of mine um, told me once, and you know, I, why change a phrase if it works? He said, not once has a deal arrived on his desk with a nice ribbon bow around it. He's had to work the deal. So whether that's it's come from a good source, whether the deal has lots of scope, or whether you're getting it at a good, at a good price, are three or four different elements and you have to work on all of them to make sure that it works for your you and your business model so in in our business we have a we have a rating um metric which when a deal comes over we can look at it physically with our eyes and not look at anything else other than maybe the particulars or the location and rate that deal whether we spend time on it or not so what one thing people get bogged down with is the noise that the market has so too many transactions too much on the market too many things to look at, not to know, not to know what to spend that spend their time on. And the other thing is is comp- competition. Who are you dealing with? You're probably never going to be the person that has the cheapest build costs and has the cheapest finance. So you've got you've got all of that working against you, and you need to work the deal in the way that it works best for you. Um, the easiest way to do that is to find out the seller's motives. Are they time or money motivated? Do they want to deal quickly but don't matter so much what the price is? Or do they care more about the price and have some flexibility on the time, which enables you to get in there and add value before you own the site? So we have a few sort of tips and tricks, but it kills me to hear people say, we'll only do a deal if it's off market, because by the time they've secured their first deal, I've probably cash flowed eight in two years and delivered them and built them out and made more profit than them just sitting there and not doing on market deals. So that's our perspective. Maybe when we're it, you know, middle-aged individuals, and we're we're spending less time on our business, and and we do want higher returns, less frequent deals. We may look at raising how many direct vendor deals we do. But currently, if you're trying to grow a business, um, I I, I love on market deals, and I think there's huge value there. And if anyone wants to reach out because they're struggling to find them, feel free to because it's, it's a few tweaks to your approach can enable you to find a lot more deal flow. Um, and you know, ha- happy to help. But I, I, I like the the thrill of the chase and making sure that you've got the best competitive advantage for you as a business, and that's got to be adapted to to what the the sales process is for that particular asset. Yeah, I've just just run a few numbers on that. Fifty five percent of the projects we're working on have been on market. Wow. The rest have been either a JV or sort of off market or direct to the um direct to the vendor so you know a significant amount is on the market i would say and look at this man ben's running live numbers on on the podcast i love this um that is i mean although it's just above half that i think that's still significant because even like in buy to let land people still oh you can't find deals on right move it's too late i'm like mm, i've bought plenty off right move and they were they were awesome so you know Someone's trying to sell you their fancy leaflets and yellow envelopes or something. But, you know, it's still a good thing to do as well, right? Like to have a balance of approaches. Yeah, you, you've got to have a balance in, in how you look and find things. But it would be worth mentioning that the other 45% was not sourced from a single letter. 
So even though 55% were on market, the other 45% were purely from connections and networking. So people that have introduced us or recommended us or projects we've seen struggling on the market, but we've brought it offline and done a joint venture. Um, so yeah, so even though we, we we do a percentage of direct vendor lettering and it's, it tends to be ad hoc. So we see a site, we like the look of the site and we send a letter. Um, and we do have like marketing, uh, what should I call them? runs where we send out quite a few and we had a source of like pulling up sites with with considerable value pr uh, prospects and things like that but in short the majority of our businesses run off people that we network and speak to and get referred to um and also just on on market sites yeah that's that's a really good point and i think this is where your reputation and or brand comes in if you're known i guess you know also if you're known in a certain area or for doing a certain type of development people are and I hear this all the time, people are going to approach you, people are going to give you deals, whether there's a cost or whether there's not, people are going to to want to work with you and, and show you deals. So that's, I think that's something people don't think about, the sourcing that can come from your mate, you know, the person across the table from you, things like that. So, I mean, do you use any technology when it comes to sourcing, Nimbus, Land Insight, any of that fancy stuff? We do have access to a, um, a few tech, well, technical-based um, platforms. Saul uses Land Insight. We've always had an account with Sprift, uh, which is actually more sort of property data focused. Um, we've recently signed up for a new one, which is is called Property Data. Um, I, I believe Saul also uses a bit of Nimbus, but um, our preferred route is agents. I mean, there's a lot to be said for the old school methodology of an agent pulling a site, you winning the agent and getting the agent on board. I always have this theory that, that an agent um, if the purchase price changes by 10%, that's only 10% of their fee, which isn't a, a surmountable amount. So they would much rather a clean clean cut sale with a person they know, like, and trust than to, to worry or quarry too much about the purchase price. Um, but we do use tech and we try to integrate tech as much as we can within our business. But I think from where our business is going is Ben's got a, a huge amount of skill set that can be really utilized in design planning and delivery. I've got a skill set which is within acquisitions and we've almost been doing like proof of concepts to this date. And the, even though we are on, I don't, I don't know, coming up to, you know, double figures of what projects we're taking on, we're, we're more or less doing a proof of concept to build our branding and build our reputation um, so that the latter part can flow with, you know, using more tech, systemizing, bringing in the team and looking for more sites that are le less obvious, as it were. I think the thing the branding thing is is huge, and obviously Ted, you know this more than any other because it's it's something you do a lot of. But the past three years, both Jack and I have been very actively networking, very actively kind of seeking speaking gigs and doing webinars, and you know using our social media presence and and just keeping what we're doing at the forefront of of people's minds that kind of know us and and connect with us. You know some of our projects that we're working on, one of which is a essentially nine unit scheme in Maidenhead um, came from a uni friend. He, he reached out to me. He'd seen what, what we'd been doing up on, on social media. Um, and that's a scheme that could be a really, really juicy joint venture for us. Um, likewise, one of our biggest projects, which is a joint venture with a big, uh, what's the best way of describing that? I mean, they're a, a commercial property developer investor. They've got a lot of retail uh, retail sort of units, prime, high street frontages with uppers. Um, and we're doing a, a proof of concept with them where it's seven units in Canterbury. 
that came to us from a, a chat I had with someone at a, a summer barbecue through one of my business networking events. And he's, you know, he's the commercial director of, of this company. And now we're doing, you know, a, a, a 1.5 million pound scheme in Canterbury. They've got further schemes with, you know, 14 units in Reading, 16 units in Cardiff, you know, they want us to move on to the next, um, next one after we finish with the Canterbury project. So um, it is amazing how, many people kind of reach out to you if you do just put yourself out there yeah i think you know these are just case studies for people listening to show how important networking is for raising money and also for for finding deals which again is is kind of not spoken about so much but clearly you know very very clearly it works now jack you mentioned um less obvious sites so when it comes to what you're both looking for or i guess maybe the question that i think listeners want to know is and again, maybe, you know, take into account, you know, coronavirus lockdowns, the way the world's changing. What are maybe some of the types of less obvious or non-traditional opportunities that people maybe should look for if they want to develop? Yeah, no, of course. Um, we're, we're big believers of always evaluating the return on GDP and not the actual cash amount. Um, and, and the reason I believe that's important is because some people look at a deal and say it's only got 80k in it and it's going to take me 24 months why would i do that but in our prospect we, we're looking at what's it going to cost you to get that return um and it's all a learning process and that agent that you're buying that lot off you may be able to resell or relet through another agent and you're building relationships so we never sort of um we never push away sort of smaller prospects so as mentioned some of our purchases have been 460 grand for a 1.5 million GDV, 780,000 pounds for a 2.1 million pound GDV, the joint venture, which Ben mentioned, which is a 1.5 million pound GDV. But we're doing a few cheeky deals around the side as well. And that's because it's good for cash flow. We like the small projects. They're more straightforward. They sometimes require just as much time, but you've got to build a business that that's a bit more fluid and, and also building your brand and reputation uh, accordingly and you, you will learn just as much from those smaller projects as you will from the from the bigger projects and it's good to cut your teeth on finance legals joint venture agreements all the all the above on some mixed sizes of schemes because it you know we're, we're all learning here um so we do do smaller deals as well more obvious ones so i personally think the best deals that you can be doing is a is a simple straightforward flip with a distressed sale get it below market value spend a small amount on it and flip it back to the market or hold it similar to what what you've been working on too, Tej. Um, there are deals there on the market. It all comes down to how you see the, the end value, what you can do, how you can deliver it and how you can negotiate that deal. Um, with, with regards to where you say that the sort of easier wins, um, if you build a relationship with a commercial agent, and this is what I've learned in my area, if you buy one project for a commercial agent, you may be their biggest customer because there's very few commercial agents that sell more than one asset to a business. It doesn't matter how big this business is, whether they're selling 60,000 square foot industrial sheds or a 1,000 square foot D1 unit. If you buy either of those units with them, you have got the same relationship to a certain degree with that agent as the big players do. So it's a great foot in the door to buy a little cheeky um, commercial building that you might repurpose, build above, change of use, you know, renew the tenancy, upgear the lease, split it into two and charge a higher pound per square foot rate. Those deals, I think, are great for getting your foot in the door with commercial agents. They have great deals. They have portfolios. They have mixed use schemes. They have resi schemes that for some reason the seller has not gone resi agent. And they're good ones because they're nuggets. 
And when you build that relationship with them, they're a lot more commercially minded than, than estate agents. I find that sometimes with estate agents, they're trying to do everything against you um, because they always tend to work for the seller. And what that inevitably does is they're not working for the person that's, you know, exchanging money money and is going to be in this for longer. So I always tell tell agents, I'm doing 10 of these a year. Please consider that when we're doing any form of business where commercial agents get that. They're only in it commercially. Um, so I actually think the easier wins are just going directly and building a really good relationship with one commercial agent. Um, build it with multiple, but use that as comparable analysis and do some work with them. But you only need really one purchase to build a very good relationship with one commercial agent in your area. Mm. And, you know, Ben, this might be a question more for you on the architectural side, but mm-hmm. on the planning side, but when you're looking at sites and, and you, know, you cover quite a broad area geographically um, and you're, you know, you're happy to look at kind of wider areas, you know, is there a way you know, that you can, you know, you, you see a site, um, you know, is there a way you can quickly ascertain if, it, you know, what the chances are of getting planning to do what you're thinking? Like, is there a way of looking and saying, hmm, what could, you know, what's possible actually? Yeah, I mean, there, it would be great if there was. Um, <laughs> that is obviously the question I get asked all the time, you know, what can I get on this site? Um, and, and in reality, you have to do some work, you have to to look at policies, you have to look at surrounding properties and, and previous planning approvals. And, you know, you have to have the experience that I've got and the team of, you know, planning consultants around me to get a, as good a feel as you can for those sites. There is, again, it, there is no quick win in property development. And, you know, some, sometimes you think a, a planning approval would be easy and, you know, you, you come up against hard times and, and that's just the nature of it. So, you know, can you, going back to kind of de-risking the sites, it's, is the fullback position going to wash its face? If it is, then great. Um, you've got the planning uplift to to um, to push for. But um, to answer your question, no, there is no there is no quick and easy way of understanding it. You know, employ the right team, get to get to know some good planning consultants, and it doesn't really have to be a local planning consultant. They, you know, planning planning law is planning law. Um, sometimes there can be. Um, uh, benefits to someone that might have worked for the local council or, or know sort of by name some of the the plan you know senior planning officers but but in general sort of planning law is planning law and a planning consultant wherever you work in the uk they should be able to give you a good steer on from a policy perspective um what's possible on those sites but sadly you know, <laughs> that there is there is no golden ticket unfortunately and and you know i guess I suppose with development, you know, there there comes more cost, whether it's time or money, in the kind of pre work. You know, like you said with the the deal and Spencer's, would you you put in that pre work? But you had to be able to afford to be able to do it, and that's the reality of it, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the the fortunate position that we're in is that you know, in in this early stage in in our business, I can run a lot of that. In- that drawing package, you know, those drawing packages, the, the the information that we need to submit for those pre-planning um, advice applications, that is something I can do personally. So the cost is is my time, you know, in the business to do that. So, um, you know, not everyone has that, and they will have to pay for those um, services if they want to find out the the relevant information, which I would always recommend doing we, we for this particular site in spencer's wood you know we had a conversation with the parish council um, as well as doing a pre-app just to again de-risk it a little bit more get some insight into 
what their thoughts are in the local community. Um, and they changed the tact for us. You know, we were actually going to keep some of the offices as offices, um, but they said there's so many three and four bed houses going up in the area. We would prefer one and two bed flats. Um, so we changed it into to, to one and two bed flats, which works for us from a, a GDV perspective really well. And it was just having that conversation that that sort of gave us the confidence to to push for more residential units rather than holding some of it as offices. So um, yeah, doing that pre-work can be costly, but actually you're missing out on a lot of value by not doing it. Yeah, because... I, suppose, I, suppose, I suppose to come in on that point for the listeners there, they're probably thinking, well, I haven't got an architectural practice that I can lean on and I haven't got four grand that I can do a pre-app, a, pre uh, a planning consultancy report and do a lot of work up front on the site. But what you can do is put the time in and find out what you're good at and trade that in for other things. So for example, if I if I pull an absolute plum off site offline and my job is acquisitions, so that's what I do. So if I don't have three great deals in my back pocket, I'm not doing my job well enough. So analyze what you're good at and what you're going to specialize in within the property spectrum. When you're starting out, you're probably gonna to have to wear a few hats and you're probably gonna wear the other hats not as well as what you do well, but that's, that's the start. And the way that you can do your job well is do that really well and trade off some of the, the benefits of what you've produced to the table so that other people are more interested to come and board and do something with you. For example, if I took a deal to my planning consultant and said, look, I can't afford your 1800 quid plus fat scoping report um, on this particular one, but, but I think there's huge scope in it. If you like the look of it, I'll pay you double your fee at the end on success. And you could do that with the architect. You could do that with a builder. You could do that with a planning consultant. And that way you're, you're forward funding a, a prospect. But the most important thing is you've got to be bringing something to the table. You can't necessarily expect to find the deal and right move that doesn't work, take it around all the professionals and then being like, this looks stuffy, I'm not interested in that. You've got to do all the legwork up front. So for listeners out there, it's not as easy as relying on other businesses or cash flow to bring that stuff in. You can just do one thing particularly well. And you may be an architect listening to that and that, that might be what you bring to the table. You might be a contractor. That might be the element you'd bring to the table, but it's it's to a certain degree to do with working together more so than not. We're quite fortunate that we have all of that to a certain degree in-house. Um, but for the listeners out there thinking, well, I don't have that, I don't have this, it's not, it's not a stumbling block. You can bring a lot to the table, but it just depends what it is and how you deliver it. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done that multiple times with multiple professions and it works. And you'd be surprised at, you know, people listening how much, you have that someone doesn't but you think it's normal because it's normal to you um but there's always value to be had and there's always value to be exchanged now when it comes to purchasing you know obviously these numbers you know they're not small uh, just generally speaking um how are you acquiring sites are you doing everything on options are you doing delayed completions or are you just buying them straight up or what what's the deal there uh we haven't done a single option yet have we jack we've We've bought a number of things um, with some kind of subject to, um, subject to planning or subject to um, certain leases being in place or, or some other kind of uh, creative method. But a lot of our schemes have been unconditional for the ones that are, you know, ours and aren't a joint venture, for example. Um, and that is where you do really need to de-risk it from from your perspective. Um, we would put in pre-apps we would speak to the you know planning officers if it does need planning beforehand and do as much as we can before exchange um 
to de-risk it uh it's it kind of depends on the situation the project itself but we'll try and get a subject to planning agreement in place where we can um but we're not not really afraid of going unconditional if we feel like we've de-risked it enough to to warrant it or we're, we're getting it at a, a decent enough price yeah i suppose one thing that we do which i've not really seen many people do out out there in the development world is we we de-risk the projects. We understand what it's going to cost us to buy it, fail on everything that we wanted to get in hope value, including the costs, including the finance, including everything, and then sell it with that. You know, it might be tart up and turn around. It might be split a couple of titles and sell it on, and then sell it without making a loss. That's our like unconditional value. But the upscope is get the planning we achieve and 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 what does that look like? So we 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 actually tend to do a dual offer process. Um, which basically means the vendor has a choice whether they go for a quick cash upfront sale um, or they prolong the process and take a, a, a more uh, monetized value. And what that tends to replicate in terms of a buying structure is not a lot of the stuff we've done, like Ben said, is on options, but most of them are unconditional contracts or conditional contracts. So the conditional contracts is we exchange. We, we, have, the pro- we have the time and the process to do everything we need to in between that exchange and completion date. And then we complete subject to us getting planning or getting what we need, or we pull out, or alternatively, we just go with the unconditional because we might have found something else that we could do with it. Um, so it's it's normally our most common method is is probably unconditional. Then then after that, uh, it's it's uh, it's a conditional contract, which is basically the same as an uncon contract, but there's a big time period and one stipulation, which is normally planning or change of use or uh, whatever it may be. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, Jack, about how um, people are either sort of money motivated or time motivated by offering those two options. You're kind of finding out which one they are. Um, and, and it is all about understanding what the vendor's position is and what they want. And that kind of, you know, if they come back with an uncon- with accepting the unconditional, they're clearly keen to move move quickly and can take a hit on the price. Whereas if they're not really that motivated, they're more likely to say, OK, look, we'll We'll, we'll get more for our, our asset, but you know we don't mind it coming six months down the line once you've achieved planning. So it's about understanding the vendor's position. 100%. And moving, I guess, quite naturally on from the kind of acquisition or part of it, how do you usually fund these deals? I know with development finance, you can do some funky stuff. So yeah, any case studies or even a general thing of how you like to fund at least a purchase? Yeah, we've done various different things with with a lot of the purchases that we've done to date. Um, we've done crowdfunding. One of our schemes was bought with a, a an equity joint venture partner. Another scheme was funded by a sort of debt um, investment from a from a JV partner. Um, so we're again quite creative in the way that we we purchase things, and it has to be the right partner with the right structure for us to kind of move forward with it. But the, the crowdfunding process was was quite interesting. Yeah, just sort of in general, the, the most common ways that we fund it aside of crowdfunding is just a loan investment or equity investment that comes into the business. Um, obviously, an equity investment shares some of the risk and some of the upside. And a loan investment um, basically lodges a, a loan with whatever projects we're doing. I can't specify the business, obviously, because that's subject to what we're, what we're doing. But we tend to take more of the risk and, and pay a, uh, more structured return rather than a profit share if that makes sense yeah absolutely and you know i think early on in this podcast you mentioned that 
the Spencer's Wood project took, was it over a year to get funded? Yeah, it, I mean, th- it, that wasn't the, the original purchase. So once we, we we bought in March 2019, we had planning permission in place l- in October 2000, no, late July 2019. Uh, we were hoping to secure the finance in, you know, by October of that year and start works in, in the winter. Um, we had all sorts of issues with Shawbrook, which kind of dragged on for four or five months before telling us that they couldn't lend. Um, and then we found a private lender, which we were moving forward with, and we were about a week away from signing. Um, and lockdown happened and coronavirus hit um, and we were back to square one. So um, we had to kind of try to get the best we could out of Shawbrook, which was essentially just a refinance based on the existing product that we've got, but them allowing us to refurbish the office, which wasn't the full scheme that we were hoping for. Um, And then Jack touched base with the private lender in July this year and said, look, are your drawbridges back up, back down? Are you lending again? Um, So we picked up conversations with them um, to to kind of kick things off where we left off and we managed to get the funding sorted um, late September. So yeah, pretty much a year um, to, to sort of find the finance to build out the scheme that we achieved planning floor late last year. Wow. And I mean, it, it's obviously a huge, um, not bonus, but it's a huge thing that that site was cash flowing. Because obviously, if someone bought a site that wasn't, you know, which you know, many don't, and they then had to wait a year for an investor. I mean, that is painful at those levels of interest on, you know, in terms of the, the amount you're borrowing that is super painful so you mentioned you know build out and in general you know do you do you manage your builds do you have a contractor do you have a project manager how does the build out stage work for you as a company yeah we'll we'll tender out the the contracting process we don't have an in-house team we don't have necessarily a um team of builders that we call upon albeit because we had such a good experience with one of the contractors that we worked with on a scheme that we've just finished uh he's moving on to two of our our future projects so um we will often tender it out so we'll we'll go to three or four contractors uh, analyze the the tender returns negotiate between them um to find the, the the right contractor for us and then just manage that process um we might be paying a little bit more for that um, rather than kind of a contract management process, which is where we kind of package it up into smaller things and and oversee the project more ourselves. But realistically, we wouldn't be able to cope with the level of a number of projects that we've got going on at the moment if we did it that way. We don't have the team at this point to do that. So yeah, we, we generally take everything to tender uh, and then find the most suitable contractor for us. Do you find that this level of refurb, which is sort of multiples, multiples of hundreds, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds, that you tend to work with kind of, you know, real professionals who are not cowboy builders? Or do you think they still <laughs> exist at this level? No, they they exist at every level, to be honest. Um, it's it's about kind of how you manage that process and, and ultimately how you set your budgets from day one. I know people get a lot of bad press or a lot of sort of, you know, cowboy builders get a lot of bad press, but but I do ultimately think that the client is often to blame for that process um because they haven't budgeted correctly and the contractor's maybe coming in extremely cheap because he wants the work um but 
often that just goes the wrong way um and there's not enough money in the project for it to work and there never has been from day one um and that's where people become uh, unstuck when they get towards the tail end of projects mm. and you know what speaking of, of building out you had or have a really interesting uh, project where you turned a sort of a car park slash i don't know drive under car park into flats which i've seen um, yes. Could you talk us through that the, and the figures on it, and then obviously the timelines? I want to kind of show people the, you know, yeah. what you can achieve. Yeah, that one was um, that was actually our crowdfunding project. Um, so it's a it's a basement undercroft um, below a block of six flats in the centre of Reading. Uh, I own one of the six flats already, so this was kind of a direct to to sort of freehold management company deal, um, which I negotiated a couple of years ago, um, had planning for the two units down in the basement. Um, we purchased it for £90,000 for the, for the undercroft. We had a red, uh, a Rick's red book valuation um, of £160,000 for, for that undercroft. I don't really think it was worth that much, um, but you know, it just shows how much below market value we did um, get that for. Uh, we raised £350,000 via Crowd with us, a crowdfunding platform, um, of which you know 90, the £90,000 purchase price was included within that 350. We built it out for 250 grand, um, and the two units are now worth. Well, we've we've agreed sales for £489,000, um, so a decent £110,000, £115,000 profit. Um, and yeah, timeline. So yeah, we 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 started on January the twentieth, twenty twenty. We finished on uh, July twentieth, twenty twenty. So sort of six months from start to finish. Um, we agreed sales at the beginning of September, and we're hoping to complete by the end of November. So within ten months, we yeah we purchased, we've built them out. Um, they're both finished fully, um, and sales have been agreed for both of them. So pretty pretty decent project especially given given coronavirus and yeah. yeah i think it's one of those things that like you would drive past that undercroft i mean not not in this case because it, it's around the back but generally you'd drive past something like this and you'd think nothing of it you, it it just doesn't kind of occur to you but you just pulled out the bag within 12 months a hefty amount of profit for something that you know was unused unloved and would never really have much done to it and, you know, I suppose people wouldn't even consider, oh, hey, we could put flats in there. But, you know, I've been to them. They don't feel small. They don't feel, you know, crowded. They don't feel like what you might think would fit in there. So, you know, finding a deal like that, yeah, you know, you had one of the flats. But, do you know, would you encourage people to look at those kind of funky things like that and see if they can work? Yeah, I mean, this this was a very, very niche kind of development. Um, it was something that I bought the flat nine, my flat nine years ago, thinking, well, there's definitely added value in there. Um, you know, it's, it's it took a long time to kind of get everyone on board and negotiate and um, get it over the line. But once we had the the purchase, um, like I say, you know, we were, we were in and out within six months, um, delivering it and um, sales soon after. But yeah, I mean, th there's the opportunity everywhere. Um, and I'm, I'm sad, you know, I, I go down every street, I go down looking for, for infill developments and gaps and you know, garage conversions and um, you know, anything possible. Um, and I think the more you get into development and the more you kind of start to love it, the more you will find opportunities like that because you're looking for them. They're, they're everywhere. They really are. And am I right in saying you put in no money because it was all, all crowdfunded? 
we had about there's probably about 15 grand's worth of kind of soft costs and and legals and you know all of that kind of upfront stuff um but predominantly you know the 350 grand that we raised via crowdfunding that that is the purchase and the development costs um so yeah it's it's very very little input from us that's you know on paper obviously we're not going to ignore the hard work and the stress and the challenges but on paper you know 15 in for you know 100ish out that's yeah. that's pretty solid and you know one thing people say is oh you know it's all right for these lot they've done it you know they they're working with big numbers and i think i think it's bullshit that that kind of belief do you think anyone can do any size of deal as long as they apply themselves correctly and have the right team yeah absolutely um i don't see it it is a, a work ethic when you're starting out you need to have it um and it might be difficult it is difficult to be fair and if you're doing developments um you know my advice would be to make sure that you have got a bit of a lump sum behind you because i know people tout about no money down deals and and that you know that is possible but cash flow is king in every business regardless of of you know developments or uh, investment or anything you're always going to i mean our our solicitor bill over the last sort of 18 months has been huge and there's no one else that has to pay for that other than us um so yes there are no money down deals out there but don't think that that means you literally can start with zero because you are going to need soft costs um and something to play with as sort of capital expenditure um yeah i i would also caveat that just just not not ben's point um your point where you said you know, c- could anyone with the right team do any size of deal? We as a business doing projects between sort of one and 20 units, and we're comfortable at that level. We have had units, uh, well, schemes come across our desk bigger than that. And for us, we just need to acknowledge where our skill set lies. And that may be within the design, the negotiations, or the planning, but it's not going to be in the delivery. It's not going to be in the funding. It's not going to be in the higher levels. So for example, we've had a scheme come across our desk, which is 11 acres, probably got scope for circa 50 units. What I've agreed is I'm just going to act as a consultant for the seller because it's sort of above my pay grade and our business's size. But we've got a shed load of contacts of big home builders and bigger players that will love that and swallow that. So we, from a certain degree, we helped the vendor because he's very, very pun intended green uh, when it comes to the plot that he has. Um but we're, we're bringing that attribute that we're going to get a better value for his site and our fee will be paid within excess as if he went to market on his own um, or was, you know, maybe advised by by someone else, you know, maybe in the property sector or not. Um, but we've understood our position in that structure. So anything that's too big, we do still, you know, keep a, what I'd like to say, a foot in the door, but we we make sure that we're only doing what, what we're best at. Um, and, and in this particular situation it's managing the relationship between the buyer and the and the seller and making sure the seller gets the best value and we're acting almost like acting like a um a, a consultant advising him um on you know the nuances and the languages which he doesn't understand such as overages you know delayed completions planning pre-app air of outstanding natural beauty green belt all of these things we're, we're assisting with amazing and i think that's you know that's adapting isn't it it's like you said it's you know we're not comfortable with that we don't necessarily want to do that but you know can we help can we make it work can we use our knowledge and our contacts and i think we have to be able to shift and use our toolkit and not just be like no we do 10 we do 10 units that's it nothing else but you have the skills to to do other things around it so 
We're almost at the end of the podcast. I think we could talk for a very, very long time. But my last question is, what are the biggest three mistakes you've made in property? Don't say JV partner. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good question. Um, Jack, have you got any to mind? I'm trying to to think of a few. Um, Yeah, I've got, so uh, my, 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 I personally think that the mistakes, uh, I say this to people around me and it's it's pretty cringeworthy, but it's it's a belief of mine. A mistake is only a mistake if it's made twice, because if it's made once, you've learned from it. And if you didn't make that mistake, you wouldn't have learned from it. So you would make it at some point in the future. So so my, my view is if you if you cock up twice with the same reason, then that is a pretty, you know, that's a mistake. Um, my one of my early mistakes but I don't believe it's a massive cock up because I've now got Ben as part of my team I had a failed planning application which cost me nearly 20 grand in central Reading and I was caught between a rock and a hard place because Reading Borough Council approved certain things but pushed back on certain things then when I went to appeal it was almost that they agreed on the opposite things and they disregarded a few things that weren't important so I was I was basically in a planning application where um, as the district approved 95% of it and the 5% they didn't approve, the, the, the national appeal process approved and found something else that was wrong with it. Um, so you could call it being up by the system. You could call it spent a lot of money because it was Reading Borough and they want loads of assessments. But my learning curve in that was making sure that I'm not doing all the parts that I'm not educated on because for me it was a bit like going into a casino and putting money down on a on a on a number because I didn't really know what I was doing um, and that was in the planning process so that mistake has happened and it cost me personally um, there were, I didn't have an investor involved in that so it cost me personally uh, an expensive lesson but moving on from that you can see how I was really attracted and drawn to handing off that side of the business because my skill sets lie in founding it. I found the prospect. It probably could have worked if it had the right person doing it, um, like Ben, but it, it didn't. So that was uh, probably one of that's probably my most painful mistake. Yes, yeah. I think um, this this isn't from an investment or development perspective, really, but a business as as a general. I've I've made a few mistakes in in my architectural practice where I kept hold of a team member for too long. Um, and that old cliche of kind of you're only as good as your weakest link um, is so true. And if you haven't got the right team around you, it can be a massive drain. Um, so, you know, hire fast, fire fast is is kind of my mentality now. Um, I definitely tried to make things work for too long. Um, but if the team member isn't right, then, you know, there's plenty more opportunity out there to bring someone on board that that is. So that's definitely some yeah, mistake that I've made. Uh, one of the other things I think that is quite key is, is not getting too greedy, um, especially with development where essentially, you know, you know, time time is money couldn't be more sort of true with property development. So you could hold out and hold out for you know, an increased offer or um, drag things out to try and get what you want. But essentially all of that time is going to, is going to cost you a shitload of money in in investor um, funds and finance. So you need to move quickly. You need to act fast and, and make decisions that, you know, it might not be the level that you want, but actually holding on to it even longer is going to cost you more in the long run. Yeah. 
Amazing. Excellent advice from both. And look, thank you so much for coming on the TED Talks podcast. People, if you want to get hold um, of Ben or Jack, please look in the show notes. I will include all their notes. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.